0: Hi, I'm Morven Westfield, and you're listening to Vampires, Witches, and Geeks, a podcast about vampires, modern witches, and geeky stuff. This is episode 36, Beyond Twilight, the infinite variety of vampire fiction, with Anana Arthan. Because of the length, I've divided Anana's presentation into three parts. This is the final part, part three. In this lively talk, recorded at Books and Booze in Colchester, Connecticut, on April 20, 2013, Anana Arthan traces the histories of vampire in fiction and debunks some of the common mistakes and misinformation about the genre. She ended part two, talking about how the movie The Mummy is possibly responsible for giving us the plot device of the vampire falling in love with someone who he believes is the reincarnation of a past love. Part 3, The Conclusion, discusses how the vampire became a love interest.
1: So this started, this did not start, but this kind of like sealed the vampire as the romantic figure even though he's morally doubtful. I mean, women just sent Fred millions of love letters. They sent him, you know, their underwear, they begged him to to bite them. Barnabas would fall in love with the female characters and want to make them vampires so they can be together forever. So it was the change from the whole idea of like the vampire seducing the victim for completely selfish reasons. And this set the stage for all of the, vi- the Dracula love stories, where Dracula comes back and he, he's interested in Mina or Lucy because they resemble his lost love, or, he, or for some other reason he's in love, love with them. Um, And Barnabas was not the first angsty, romantic, remorsel vampire that was Sir Francis Barney, Mm -hmm. but also Lon Chaney Jr.'s Wolfman. Uh, You you watch the old Wolfman movies and you sort of like see echoes of Dark Shadows with the whole, you know, I just want to be cured. If I can't be cured, I just want to die because I can't take it anymore. (laughs) You know, and you saw that. So, but Dark Shadows kind of winds down in, by 1971, it's canceled. In 1968, the movie's rating system was implemented so that you didn't have censorship. And this is something a lot of people don't remember, is between 1933-34, which is why some of those really early movies, I mean, look at, she's probably falling out of her top there, were getting very edgy in terms of nudity and violence and what they were showing on the screen. So the Hayes office was implemented to put a stop to that, because he said this is you know, corrupting people. And then in 1968, they abolished that, and they put in the rating system, and they said, okay, you know, people have a right to see what they want to see, and we just need to let people know what's in there, and it was the idea. It was considered very, there were people who really were opposed to that. But this let vampire movies just go over the top. So they already were pushing the edge, and now the nudity, and especially with the Hammer film series, just got really extreme. And they started to do, remember what we said about the parody showing when you're on the downswing; you got. You know, <laughs> movies, What they <laughs> called Blacula. the Blaxploitation blacks, <laughs> movies, where you, know, you had William Marshall, who was a very fine Shakespearean actor, and he's playing in you know, Blackula. <laughs> um, and you got the Count Yorga movies, which brought in... This is really the first time I can think of where you had Vampire Shambling Zombie because you had this whole crew of vampires living in Yorga's house that just were mindless and I think they've been shot at and that's why they're all bloody. <laughs> but you know, just walking onward. But really, you didn't talk, didn't think, just, you know, sort of post, this was after um, Night of the Living Dead, just these sort of shambling devours and, 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 and the Count Yorga movies kind of started that, but you, you started to see it more in other films. Also, Count Yorga movies used what was called a shock ending because the vampire wins at the end. But that was the ending of the vampire in eighteen nineteen. So it wasn't, you know, we got into this convention of well, the bad guy has to lose, and that was partly the Hayes Office. The Hayes Office said, "You cannot have evil prevail." That was a strict, strict rule. And all the movies start. With, threw that out. The minute the Hayes office was closed down, all the movies started having their anti-heroes win, and having these twist endings, and, and you know not having the good guys prevail. Because they could, finally. And they weren't allowed to do that before then. OK. In 1973, and I, I, met, him, I met this guy before he passed away, Raymond T. McNally and Radu Florescu wrote a book in which they said, guess what? Dracula was a real person. <laughs> Bram Stoker based his character on this 15th century Wallachian prince uh, who impaled people. You know, with this really nasty customer, and his name was Dracula. His name was Vlad Dracula, um, and they, you know, had wrote this book and had all these stories about how you know Bram Stoker had based his character on Vlad Dracula. That has become immutable canon. It is totally wrong. But you cannot correct it. The number of vampire stories with characters named Vlad, you know, just, just boggles your mind. I mean, it's almost as bad as the ones with characters named Van Helsing, <laughs> which is also just mind boggling. You know, people, and I think the reason this grabbed people so hard, and it's the thing is that it, um, Ripley's, believe it or not, had actually popped this scoop earlier mm-hmm. in one of their columns. Guess what? There was a real person named Dracula. Nobody paid any attention. But this book was by scholars at Boston University.
0: So it must be
1: true. It must be true. <laughs> must be true. Um, and they, they built a big case for it, I mean, with illustrations and pictures and stuff like that. So, uh, but that has now been debunked. But the thing is, this kind of led to the whole idea, well, you know, maybe does this bring vampires closer to reality somehow? You know, that, that if, if if Dracula was based on a real... Character, then maybe vampires are real, or maybe immortality is real. I mean, you know, it sort of tweaks the imagination that way. So you just cannot get rid of that idea. But this is one of the big game changers for vampire fiction is kind of bringing this down to okay, let's see if we can marry vampire fiction to real life and to history and historical fact and historical people. And who else in history might really have been a vampire? And all that sort of thing. And that became a whole thread from this point on in vampire fiction, where people played with that idea. But vampires in the 70s were out. Very dead spot. Mm -hmm. Stephen King published Salem's Lot in 1975. It was his second book. I had read Carrie, and I was bullied a lot in school, so it was like a total catharsis for me reading Carrie. And so I was very interested in King as a writer, so his second book comes out and I, you know, took it home to read it. And about a third of the way in I'm going, Is this a vampire book? <laughs> and I love vampire stories, but that's how understated they were about what that book was really about. That they didn't want to market it as having anything to do with vampires in 1975. And of course, it became this monster bestseller, and they made like three, I think, three different film adaptations of it and so forth. Um, and what King was doing, and he, I think he said his wife gave him the idea, he said, what would happen if we transplanted the basic plot of Dracula to a small main town? And we had, so we had these characters come to the small main town and settle in and start taking over because, you know, they're chewing their, basically eating their <laughs> way through the town. Um, but, so after the book became real popular, in later years, they became much less coy about what the story was about. But I've never, I'll never forget the shock that I felt, getting being so far into that book before I realized what was actually going on, mm-hmm. and the way that the promos and marketing for the book, the dust jacket copy, nothing, mm-hmm. nothing gave you a clue that that's what was going to be in that book. <clears throat> 1976, Interview with the Vampire became a runaway bestseller, but Anne Rice didn't publish another vampire book for nine years. She initially presented it as a standalone novel. Right around that same time, uh, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough first introduced, and here we are again with the real-life character, the um, Count St. Germain, which is based on the historical Count St. Germain, um, who's a big mystery man in history. Uh, she has written, oh God, it must be thirty books now in this series. But this one was Hotel Transylvania. Is a very civilized, moral, non-violent vampire hero who, who acts as a lover to his partners. Uh, so it was a real different take on the on the car- on type of vampire that she was writing. This is actually a later book in the series, but that book cover shows her description of the character just about as accurately as I've ever seen an illustration of him do. So that's how she, she imagined him looking.
0: That's uh, Darker Jewels. Darker when Jewels. Did, when did that come out?
1: Oh Lord, I don't remember the dates. Okay. Yeah, she's published like so many of those books, and I can't keep up with them now. <laughs> but then, so these books were anomalies, and because, remember what we said, in dead periods, you start to see people doing things that are just a little different. So. Uh, you had the, the same, you know, Anne Rice's interview with the vampire put you inside the head of the vampire. It was one of the very first times where the whole story was told from the point of view in the first person of the vampire, and you were like living this character's life with him. And it was really a mind-bender. And that, I think, was a great part of the book's appeal, uh, was that first person, you, you know, suddenly vampire was not other. Vampire is you. The rest of the world is other and you are experiencing this, this, this character's experience that way. And with Count St. Germain, it's just a very benign, suddenly you're getting vampire as, as long-lived, wise, almost angelic figure that has seen almost all of human history, because he's millennia old, and still somehow is committed to human society. And so that was a very different uh, look at the character. But in 1978, there was a Broadway revival of the old Hamilton Dean stage play, with sets designed by Edward Gorey, starring Frank Langella, and that's mm. still from the stage play. It was so successful they immediately made a movie version, which made Langella a huge star, made him a much more sexual and sympathetic figure than he had been previously, brought in the whole Love story, which had already been used as a Dracula trope by um, Dan Curtis, because Dan Curtis did a version of Dracula, which he basically moved the, took the Barnabas storyline and attached it to Dracula. You know, it diverged from the book and had Dracula in love with you know or Lucy, I forget which one, <laughs> and 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 you know because she's the reincarnation of his lost love and so forth. And so you 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 saw that now every version of Dracula has to have that it seems. The heroine wants to be with him forever in that story, and that really started to kick off the vampire trope again in a very romantic way. So, we had 1980, again we had Vampire Tapestry, which was Vampire is Alien. This is a vampire that you didn't know, he didn't know himself where he came from, and this is actually a collection of stories which could all be standalone stories, hence Tapestry, uh, by Susie McKee Charnas. And there are people who say this is their favorite vampire book ever, because he's very, he's very detached. He's not human. He's very conscious of not being human. And he's very detached from human beings and the way he looks down on them. And that started to be something you saw more and more in vampire fiction, is this whole this sort of superior attitude where the vampire not only wasn't human but had never been human and has this completely different way of looking at human beings you know, it, it, as, as cattle, you know, as food, as prey. Um, and that, that really kind of started with Vampire Tapestry. And in The Hunger, she's an alien, but somehow she can make people vampires, it tends not to work very well. <laughs> um, but The Hunger was made into a very elegant movie, and that really boosted interest. In fright night you had vampire moving in next door
0: mm-hmm.
1: and dating your mom <laughs> and it just so there was what that introduced was this um, very uncomfortable familiarity that golly this person next door wearing these casual clothes and acting normal you know might have some huge secret and not be a very nice person um, and I remember seeing the original fright night with a whole theater full of I think high school and junior high school students, and you know, just the way it's screaming—it right. <laughs> was—it was a lot of fun. But um, I had to see it, you know, I had to see it on video before I realized what some of the lines were that God said. But and you also had the whole thing with the bullied kid—the kid who was bullied—and the vampire kind of takes him in and and turns him into a vampire and says, "They're not going to bother you anymore. that you're, that's that's all behind you." Um, you had the Lost Boys in yeah, nineteen eighty-seven, <laughs> <laughs> and this, this okay. With the Lost Boys, suddenly you had vampires who could fly like Superman. Up to that point, they either they turned into bats, you know, they shape shifted, or maybe they could levitate, so they could do this, this sort of floating thing. And you remember that being mentioned in by Dickens. But you didn't have this. We're gonna soar through the sky like you know. We had red capes, <laughs> and so that was new for the Lost Boys. And that actually started to get picked up more and more. The idea that the vampires could, could fly without, you know, shapeshifting or wings. Or well, my vampire, one of my vampires can do it by de- semi-dematerializing. But um, you know, they just jump in the air. Um, also, the idea vampires as a teenage gang. So suddenly, you didn't have the loner. The, the, the solitary, isolated loner anymore, or the, the loner who maybe has made a family for himself. But here, these these guys are all like a motorcycle gang, and they all, they all hunt together. And finally, in 1985, Anne Rice publishes her second book, and she introduces the vampire Lestat. And, well, Lestat had been introduced, but Lestat as a protagonist, in this case, instead of a secondary character. Her fandom really starts to take off, and one of the things that, as a writer, that she does is she holds vampire balls, she's very interactive with her fans, this is before the internet, uh, encourages this big fan community. Uh, She eventually publishes about 15 novels. Uh, Her popularity peaks when this movie came out, which is 1992. but, so now we're seeing things really build with a lot of innovations being added. And for a lot of people who started out in the 1980s, this is what vampires are supposed to be all about. I mean, they don't, you know, they think Dracula is creaky old Lugosi, and there's no, that nothing before this really mattered. But there was a lot of innovations being made in the field in the 1980s. So, in the 1990s, we had vampire role-playing games. And Vampire the Masquerade launched this enormous culture, because what happened was that there were dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of spin-off novels based on various elements of the game. He and Elrod kind of built a career out of writing a lot of these novels. And this whole subculture of people, whether they were to, what, gaming a lot, whether they were gaming online, whether they were getting together and doing what's called LARPing, live-action gaming, uh, but they were absorbing a tremendous amount of tropes that were invented not because they made logical sense for fiction, but because they facilitated the structure of the role-playing game, you know, which kind of went back to um, uh, Dungeons & Dragons. So you had all these different vampire clans, because you had to have different types of character for the players to play, or they wouldn't really have a conflict going on. And so the vampire clans are kind of equivalent to playing an elf or a dwarf or a warrior in Dungeons and Dragons. And that's why they were all invented, and they invented this whole vampire history going back to Cain, which is just totally arbitrary, but it's, it's amazing how many writers and readers have adopted all of this as being canon and as being what, you know, the real, you know, like, all vampires, of course they go back to Cain, and you know, <laughs> you know the feeling that that makes sense, and, and it's all from these games, and the gaming universe has permeated vampire fiction to the point that many people don't even realize that they're using those tropes and conventions when they use them in their fiction, because they've become so commonplace. Poppy Z. Wright started Vampire Erotica, which became a whole sub-genre in its own right, and you had Forever Night, and you had the, the vampire who is atoning for his sins. This kind of started what I kind of have gotten to find kind of a tiresome cliche. The one good guy vampire holdout in a universe in which the vampires are otherwise mean and nasty. It's just gotten awfully tired. <laughs> you know. And, and even Twilight does that. And this is something people don't realize about Twilight if they haven't actually read the books, which is... You know, common for the critics <laughs> <He isn't. laughs> is they say, "Oh, the vampires in Twilight are all nice." No, the Collins are nice. The other vampires in Twilight are ravenous, horrible, evil killers that you would not want to be sharing the same planet with because they're so awful. And you <laughs> know, and I kind of felt that Meyer set up such intense black and white polarity. And and, and and restrictions in the way she developed her vampire trope that she just really limited what she could do with the stories and like I'm not surprised that she doesn't want to write anymore because what more could you do? She painted herself into a corner. But this kind of you kind of started with Forever Night, with um, you know, this this vampire who's trying to reform and his you know, his friends are trying to, to sabotage him all the time. Laurel K. Hamilton was again very vampire erotica, but she kind of brought in. Now we have vampire slayers, and the vampire slayer really kind of started with Laurel Kate Hamilton. The idea that you had this subculture in which you had to have enforcers, you had to have police force of some kind. You had you know, they were they were a member of the culture. You know, she's a vampire, but you know, she goes around you know killing the people who don't toe the line or, or punishing them. Um, and you saw the same thing in L. A. Banks books, but now we're getting books in which are specifically various ethnic groups, so African American and, and, and so forth coming in and not just being the sort of the, the European characters that they had been up to now. So this is all was happening in the nineties. You're having the you know, the expansion into all these different sub genres splintering up and you have readers that are just really interested in those genres and that's all that they're reading. And then other writers are kind of picking up because they're seeing that these books have some popularity. And then you had Buffy the Vampire Slayer, again, you know, launching from that whole sort of Slayer idea, bringing in the idea of multiple supernatural characters in this universe. You know, werewolves, you have demons, you have witches, you have vampires. Uh, you know, They just brought all kinds of things in, which goes back to Dark Shadows. Um, and a lot of books started to pick that up at this point. You create a magical universe that is populated by multiple magical creatures, not just one thing. And you had Angel, a vampire with a soul, but he can never have sex. He can't even enjoy himself, you know, or he'll lose his soul. Uh, So this is a forerunner of the Twilight Vamps, where they have to practice this rigorous, rigorous self-control, because if they lose it for even one second, it'll be a disaster. Uh, and that was certainly true with Angel, and I could definitely see you know, Stephanie Meyer picking right up with that. So we get into the 2000s, we have vampire romance coming into its own. We have young adult fiction. Annette Curtis-Klaus in 1990 wrote The Silver Kiss. I actually saw her speaking at a convention once. It was really interesting. She was talking about where this book came from. And at that time, it was an anomaly. No one really picked up on the idea. It was it was very unusual to have a young adult book or a book for younger readers that you know treated vampires in this fashion. And I guess the the, the girl in the story has lost someone, and uh, she meets this boy, and so her grief kind of ties into to uh, the relationship she evolves with him, and so forth. Kind of a moody sort of book. But you get up into the 2000s and later 90s and 2000s, and you start to see. I think that was 95. More and more of these coming up until finally Twilight in 2005 just somehow puts it all together or hits some kind of keynote. And you can't explain what happened with Twilight. Why did it hit the keynote that it did? You know, like having a, a tuning fork where all of a sudden you've got exactly the right note. Everything is vibrating. In, in harmony with it. And there's nothing you can put your finger on except that this book by an unknown author went to auction, right out of the gate. So somebody, somebody saw something in this book. And it had kind of a slow build at first, and it, it was the movies that really made it take off. But who can say, I and mean, we, we who write vampire fiction, or any kind of fiction, if we could know, figure out what it is that makes a book like that just Bing, because you can't nail it the way you can with Interview with the Vampire. And you look at that book and you say, I think I can see, you know, in the time period that came out. You can't figure what it was about Twilight that just got people. But it did. Right time, right place, you know, just hit the right note. In the meantime, you're starting to see adult vampire fiction go into that sort of slide where you're getting a lot of (laughs) sort of humorous parody, satirical kind of sense where they're playing with the idea. Um, But then you get Charlene Harris who is now, what, mega billionaire or whatever because somebody picked that book up for a TV show. But the book, the TV show, sort of departed from the tone of the books in terms of being more serious. So we had blood ties. We have several, several books, several uh, TV shows that came up that sort of were forever night clones. Um, Tanya Huff was actually writing in the 90s and they picked her book up. She's a police officer with a vision impairment. She can't see in the dark. And she meets a vampire who is actually the um, the illegitimate son of Henry VIII, who in, in history was supposed to have died at a young age. But in fact, did not die, but became a vampire. Now he is still in, living in Toronto and, and uh, writing, He writes something, <laughs> he's a writer. And he meets her, but because he's a vampire and she can't see in the dark, and her career is at risk, uh, they sort of team up, and that's the basis of those books. Um, Moonlight did not last very long, I think timing was a victim of bad timing, um, it wasn't a bad book. Uh, in True Blood series, um, I'm sorry, that's Moonlight, that's Moonlight, Moonlight, yeah. that's Moonlight. Uh, True Blood. Uh, It was on HBO. It has really built on the sex and the nudity really very much. And, you know, people like the characters. But um, then Vampire Diaries. It's interesting. Vampire Diaries is kind of under the radar. Everyone talks about Twilight. But I have news filters for vampire anything. And they're just built. It's all Vampire Diaries all the time. And this show has just... Okay, I'm jumping ahead, but yeah. Anyway, Vampire Diaries is now with the Twilight running down. You know, you're getting this is this is your 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 team vampire, and this is where your vampire fans all are. They're all watching Vampire Diaries. I mean, this show is just taking off, and it's taking off in a very quiet way. I mean, if you ask the average person, you know, what's a, what's a teenage vampire story? They're gonna say Twilight. You say Vampire Diaries? They're gonna say never heard of it. But it's, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. There's several books and movies that are taking the whole dystopian, post-apocalyptic fad right now, and they're marrying vampires to that. And they're kind of going back to I Am Legend, um, and they're making the vampires kind of these ravenous zombie figures that are infected with a sort of disease. You have Justin Cronin and Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro with Chuck Hogan, is writing a series that he wants to make into a film. I don't know if that's going to happen, because he tends to bounce around. Hmm. Um, And then you have the the remake of I Am Legend, which went, took the original story, but took it way off into the whole dystopian, the vampires are like bald, mutant kind of things. And I was a little, you know, I was really disappointed to hear this. Apparently, the filmmakers wanted to do more with the vampires than they ended up putting into the movie, and, it, and so they had a whole thing where the vampires actually were developing a culture, and they actually had minds, and they had affection for one another, and they regarded the hero as being the guy who was, who was killing them all, mm-hmm. and that had originally been in the movie and was excised before it was released, and I find that very disappointing because I think that it would have been a much better film if they'd, they'd done that and they were not, you know, they wanted to do the whole zombie thing. Um, vampire movies had really kind of gotten stuck in a rut, uh, being very gritty, very violent, very, very bloody, and it's got to where if I knew a vampire movie was coming out, I'd say, I know this is going to be a piece of crap, because they all are. You know, they all, you know, they're, they don't have the variety that fiction does. They just kind of stay right in the same groove. And in fact, The Twilight, so, you know, 30 days of night, really did not diverge from that trend, you know, and so people say, oh well, it was, it makes vampires scary again because all vampires are like Twilight, and you just hear that constantly, the the Twilight backlash, where people think every vampire story is like Twilight, and if it isn't, it's something refreshing and new and Mm -hmm. different, it isn't that wonderful. And it just boggles my mind, because for those of us who write vampire fiction, we cannot convince readers to give us a try, because it's gone to the point where they think it's all going to be Twilight, it's all going to be angsty teenagers who sparkle. I mean, how many times have you heard this? You know, Susan and, and Mormon, you, you say you write vampire fiction. Do your vampires sparkle? Yeah. That's all that you hear. <laughs> <laughs> what, you don't hear that? I hear it on a rare occasion. Oh, Lord. But, but not as much. I, I, I I maybe do I hang with all the people who are who are into the blood and gore. <laughs> Somebody put it, when you announced When you announced this on the Facebook, and, and you'd said, you know, you had a list of people who were reading, and I put in, I said, well, I'm actually doing a talk about vampire fiction. Somebody right after that goes, yeah, will there'll be glimmering. Right. Which I didn't even answer. <laughs> you know, we had a girl in here. yes um, we, we had two young women who were probably in their mid-teens, and one of them was looking at the ad for this. Speech and she was, oh, well, you know, oh, maybe I should come back with us. You know, she was all into it, and uh, her friend was like, oh, "I hate sparkling vampires." Well, she should have been uh, here. I, I, I know. <laughs> I, like, well, I kind of wanted a beer over there with the end rice, really, because yeah, yeah, I was really? the
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: But anyway, I'm sorry. I'm actually going to come in under time here. So oh. Oh. it's ten of ten of four. Okay, so. I really don't think it's accurate to say that vampires in general are really popular right now. Certain vampire styles are popular. Vampire romance, vampire YA, particular series of vampire YA. um, These readers are voracious, they buy tons, I mean, romance is in a class by itself anyway, and YA is getting to be right up there with it, which is why, you know, if I publish more of it, probably my company would be doing better. You would be amazed how many Twilight fanfic writers do not do vampires at all. They make their characters ordinary humans. And an example would be Fifty Shades of Grey, which started as the Twilight fanfic Master of the Universe. And that author spent three years building up her audience base for that, but that story became so popular, I think she's the only fanfic writer I have ever heard of who was given her own fan convention by her readers while she was still just writing fanfic. Mm -hmm. Just amazing. Uh, Twilight is the Dark Shadows of our day in terms of being this huge cult phenomenon, but it's not as varied as Dark Shadows was. Uh, But Twilight fans don't necessarily like other vampire fiction. They like Twilight, and they like it for reasons that don't have to do with the vampires. They have to do with the relationships between the characters primarily. So, you know, Twilight is not something that necessarily gives us... A, whole, uh, a big boost as vampire authors, and we're now kind of coming down to a, we're sliding down into a kind of a lower spot. But remember what happens in those low spots. We always come back up out of them, and we usually do so with innovations. People writing stuff outside the box because now they can. So where are we going from here?
0: You know,
1: it's like, what's our path? Where a is gonna die out? Well, this is what I seem to see happening. The genre seems to be taking a more serious turn. Vampire Diaries is spinning off a spin-off show called The Originals. So that's how strong that show is going at this time. Not only is it still hot on its own right, but they're, they're, there's a whole new show coming out based on its, its fictional universe. So it's going to be more Vampire Diaries, and it looks like I mean, they're very serious on that show. That show is a, a bit of a soap opera, but it, it definitely takes itself seriously. Neil Jordan, who made Interview with the Vampire, is releasing a new film called Byzantium that seems to be taking a much more thoughtful, much less clichéd look at the theme. The vampires are out in the daylight. They don't have fangs. They use this kind of thumb thing, which had been used before. Uh, looks, you know, very dramatic. We have... Let the right one in, and it's surprisingly good remake. Let me in, which used the vampire theme to address the issue of bullying, very serious bullying, and you know, child neglect, and and problems that kids have. You know, and, and really, you know, was just grim about it, but just really got into that and presented it as solvable. The, the, the little boy gets away from, from what's going on in his life because he allies himself with this vampire who you, you get the sense has fallen in love with him. There will be a new... I think it's a mini-series oh, yes. or a series based on Dracula starring Jonathan Rhys-Meyers, who's Henry, Henry, VIII. VIII. <laughs> Henry VIII, and who is nothing if not a serious actor. I don't think this man ever smiles. Um, <laughs> I like him a lot, though, but it will undoubtedly be very serious, <laughs> and so that's coming up. And so the bottom line is that, you know, I, the way I see things happen, and this is different. In 2009, I really wasn't sure where, where things were going. All this is since 2009 when I started this talk that, you know, that I think that vampire genre is going to be with us for a really long time to come, and I think that we're going to see some very interesting permutations in it. You know, the, the, a lot of, the, of the, the frivolous stuff is going to go away. The, the romance is going to stay really popular. The, the YA is going to stay really popular, but there's going to be some very interesting things coming up. So that
0: concludes my talk. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks for listening. The contents of this presentation are copyright 2013, Anana Arthen. The recording of this episode is copyright 2014, Morven Westfield, but is licensed under a Creative Commons license. See www.vampireswitchesandgeeks.com for details.